It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I am uh, going to give away my uh, heritage here, short phrase or two. Uh, we, uh, we're really delighted by God. I mean, really, this is an overflow of our own hearts. Uh, Peter and I and those who have been part of Cordeo are genuinely, uh, genuinely committed here to um, being enthusiastic, taking the original language of in theos, uh, the sort of the, the presence of God in us creates a transformative sense of, oh my God, you're glorious, you're wonderful. And we're, we're still enthusiastic about this living God. So as we come this morning, I thought I would uh, take uh, a little bit of my historical heritage just to let you know, even though I, I clearly haven't picked up the accent, I have spent a fair amount of time here in England and included in my time was 92 to 95 at, um, at a place called St. Helen's Bishopsgate while I was attending King's College London. So that's kind of my, this is my territory. I, I've enjoyed my time here in the UK and London in particular, so it's a treat to be back here. And one of the people who I got to know during that time was a, um, a fellow named uh, Martin Luther. And I don't have any Lutheran heritage myself. That's not my particular background. But in my studies, I really came to deeply appreciate and admire Martin Luther as a man who had a heart for God and who uh, spoke deeply and convincingly about his own relationship with Christ. And I think what caught my attention as I studied Luther and his influence on the fellow that uh, Peter just teased here a moment ago, Richard Sibbs, on whom I did my studies here at University of London, uh, is how much this man was captured by what we're calling the glorious gospel. He was a gospel man. And, um, and he, it, it was what produced a reformation. Luther had no more idea that he was going to be part of something that we now call the Protestant Reformation than um, you or I would ever expect to be part of a major movement. But here's my question for us this morning. Why not? I think the world today needs a new reformation. Why not? Why not us? And what can we learn from Luther as we reach out to a world that is desperate for the gospel, desperate for a, a portrayal of God in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit that would transform them and set them free? So I think I'll just look at Luther and let him be someone who stirs and stimulates and invites us to this glorious gospel that we can then impart and offer to others. So uh, the book that... Uh, I'm going to pick off and use as my pony to ride uh, this morning is his work called uh, The Freedom of a Christian, which was one of three treatises that's readily available. You could go to Amazon or any book, uh, book sales company and pick this book up. And I would encourage you, if you have any inclination to be stirred by some of the great figures of the past, this is really worthwhile. If you want to get Luther, especially his Freedom of a Christian, Probably only 40, 45 pages, but really powerful stuff. So I'll, ju I'll just basically tell you a little bit about freedom of a Christian and take his three main points from his little pamphlet. And those are my three main points. It makes it very easy for a speaker. I didn't have to be very creative here. But let's talk about the context for the freedom of a Christian. When did he write it? 1519 to 1520. Of course, he uh, posts his famous 97 theses 
sorry, it was his 95 theses that became famous, but I like his 97 theses that he published in September uh, 4th of 1517. They didn't sell. It was called a disputation against scholastic theology. So he then went uh, later on on October 31st and did his 95 theses and bam, all of a sudden he had something going on that he never dreamt was possible. Well, he kept writing once he discovered there was this responsiveness to what he had written and come, he came back to his main themes and his main concern really was to present the loveliness of Christ, the power of God, the gospel as we then respond by faith that sets us free. And so his theme of freedom of a Christian was written and it, it generated some real enthusiasm and some real mm, alternative to enthusiasm. Uh, in fact, when he, if you've ever seen the, the, the recent Luther movie, who was, this, who was the actor in that? Uh, Fines, uh, really a good movie. I, 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 if, I'm going to promote any history movie. I'd say go read it, Martin Luther, or read the books, but watch the movie as well. Uh, Martin Luther really was a bold figure. And one of the dramatic moments in the movie is it's historically accurate. He is brought before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who is basically going to give him a hearing. And at this stage, the, the, uh, the church of the day was ready to see the end of Martin Luther. Uh, they would have been quite happy to see him cut off from life at that stage because of the stirring that he had generated. And part of that stirring were the writings that he had produced in the 1519s and the 1520s. And in 1520, he published these three treatises that are in this particular book, including The Freedom of a Christian. So in that movie, they have these books, these writings, these pamphlets laid out on the table. And this really occurred there in Worms. And they said to him, these have been renounced by the church. Do you renounce them yourself? And Luther was hoping for a conversation. And basically they said, no conversation, just yes or no. And Luther boldly stuck out his chest as it told us and showed us in the movie and said, can I think about it overnight? So he did. He thought about it overnight, wrestled in the cell. I mean, the movie was a little maybe melodramatic, but he really did have to wrestle. And then he came back the next day. And what did he do then? I, I'll just paraphrase it. And we're not sure he said quite this, but essentially this captures his thrust. He says, if you can show me, he says, these books that you've told me to renounce, he said, sometimes I'm just quoting scripture. You can hardly expect me to renounce the scriptures. In some cases, I'm simply citing things that we have always believed as the church. They're part of church documents, things that have been approved. And there's some things that I've written. And what I would like you to do is show me what it is that I'm meant to renounce. And if you can show me from scripture that I should renounce those things, I'm quite happy to do that. But until you can show me from scripture, I have to be true to my conscience. That is, I'm devoted to the word of God. And I, I must stand with the things that I've written here until you show me otherwise. And so here I stand, I can do no other, no other so help me God. <whistles> Bold stuff. And we could do a little bit of that in our generation, couldn't we? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And so what was it that stirred that kind of reaction? What was that pamphlet, the freedom of a Christian, among the stack of things that he had written that they were opposed to? Do you want to hear? Do you want to listen? 
Let's go through the three points that he offers us. First of all, he says, you know, true faith is a treasure that brings us salvation from every evil. He says, this is the secret that we need. He says, true faith in Christ, I'm quoting him here, is a treasure beyond comparison, which brings with it complete salvation and saves man from every evil. And he goes on and he cites some scriptures. And he, he wants us to understand, he says, for instance, in uh, Romans 10.10, 10, for man believes with his heart and so is justified. So he asks this question, and this is the starting point for his conversation that is the freedom of a Christian. Should you ask how it happens that faith alone justifies and offers us such a treasure of great benefits without works in view of the fact that so many books, ceremonies, and laws are prescribed from scriptures, how is it that we are free if we have so many commands, instructions, and laws? He says, well, because the scriptures have two elements, commands and promises. And he said it's not the commands that are the key because commands will only strike us with the reality that we cannot we do not have the power to fulfill those commands. I can be told not to covet, that's great. But do I still covet? The answer is absolutely. In fact, when I hear that I'm not to covet, it's like pouring petrol on the fire of my coveting. It just explodes inside of me. And he says, until we have a power that will transform us, having those commands does nothing to save us. It's the promises, he says, that are the key features. He said, so here's the second part, the scripture that comes to our aid, namely the promises of God which declare the glory of God, the glorious gospel, our theme for this particular conference, the second of our conferences, which declare the glory of God saying, if you wish to fulfill the law and not covet, as the law demands, come, believe in Christ, in whom grace, righteousness, peace, liberty, and all things are promised to you. If you believe, you shall have all things. If you do not believe, you shall lack all things. So this is where the great cry, sola fide, faith alone, comes from. And he's linking it to sola scriptura, only through the scriptures. Sola gratia, only by the grace of God does this come about in our lives. It's all about God's initiative, not our initiative. And so in his faith, it's as if he says, through the scriptural promises, we have the lens. And it, it, it's, it, he literally is using that sort of language as he talks about uh, not gazing at myself. In fact, if, if I could say there's anything true of Luther, he would say the commands are like a mirror. And I look at myself when I look at the commands, the laws, the duties that God calls us to. And all I see is my inadequacy. And even if I were to try and say, I will fulfill these laws, what I'm looking at is myself. I'm not looking at the one who takes me out of myself and brings me to salvation. So the key for Luther was to say, it is not through our efforts to keep the law that we'll ever be saved. We have to indeed be set free from the law by having the scriptures as the lens through which we look and see the face of Christ. And through seeing the face of Christ to have the freedom to know the Father and that the Father loves us with the same love that he has for Christ. This is the secret of the freedom that the gospel offers us. And Luther grasped this in ways that uh, led to the revolutionary realities 
that we call the Reformation. What's interesting is that as Luther elevated the scriptures, we need to recognize that in that day, there was a sense in which the enablement to fulfill demands and commands and requirements and in his day, remember, there was a whole set of activities that were required that would be means through which we gather to ourselves the grace of God, the sacramental grace of God, as if grace is something, something that we collect. I need more grace. I, I need to go to the saints and collect grace. I need to go to the mass and collect grace. I need to collect grace to overbalance my sins. And eventually, if I get enough grace, and perhaps a time of purgation, which is another grace-filled exercise, then I can come to God. And you see the mistake that's being made. Grace is turned into something rather than being someone. And so it was Philip Melanchthon who, when Luther is there in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, is writing another work called the, uh, the Loci Communes Theologicae, and it's the 15-1 edition. I wouldn't look at the later ones. He kind of goes weird on us after a while, but he is really speaking Luther's content, Luther's heart. He's a 23-year-old young scholar, and he writes this work, and in it he says, we must recognize that the Bible affirms saving grace to be the very presence of God's love to us by the Holy Spirit. In fact, as he writes, he says, to designate grace as a quality in the souls of the saints, that is something that we can collect, something like a commodity that I can gain and gather, he says, is absolutely nonsense. He says, it is the worst of all possible offenses, and he lists those he sees as the worst offenders. I won't mention the camp, but he says, those who have placed the quality of grace in the nature of the soul, uh, and faith and hope and love in the powers of the soul. In other words, he's saying, if we make the mistake of thinking that we have grace, that it is a habit of grace, uh, an infused grace that I get, that is like the Energizer Bunny. I don't know if you remember those old adverts, you know, the little rabbit, but if the battery runs low, you put it in and it starts to do this again. If that's what grace is, what is it about? It's about me and my effort to be saved. And he says, that's the worst of all choices. It's a massive mistake. Don't go there. Grace, he says then, is this. But the gift of God is the Holy Spirit himself, whom God has poured out in our hearts. And he's alluding to Romans 5, 5. He cites John 20, 22. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And what is it that the Holy Spirit brings to us? Love, joy, peace, patience, I think you know the list. And that's the quality of God present within us. And with his presence within us, transformation comes from the inside out because the new life of God has become present to bring transformation. And so that was really the starting point that Luther offers us as he talks about these three elements. Move away from self-gazing. Move away from the idea that I am somehow going to solve the problem with the enablement that God gives me. Instead, recognize I have no ability. Apart from him, I can do how much? Absolutely nothing. But in Christ, I have access to the fullness of God. Yeah. Anyway, he gets excited about it, and so do I. So, 
In fact, the problem that Luther recognizes is that sin is being curved in on ourselves, in, curv- in curvatus in se. It's this idea that I have lost my connection with God through the Holy Spirit, that which Adam and Eve would have had in the Garden of Eden. That by having the bond with God through the Spirit dwelling within them, they were outside of themselves, oriented to the one who would walk in the garden and have fellowship with them. And the moment they sin, they curved in on themselves and are looking and saying, I'm naked. Are you, you're, oh boy, how inadequate am I because now I'm trying to play the role of, what was the great sin? Being like God. And I'm not big enough for that. But trying to be like God in the presence of the living God just turns, turns God into a source of terror. He becomes a frightening figure and not one to be trusted. And so that was the birthing of sin. And the solution then is to live by faith as we're drawn out of ourselves by the grace of God. And through faith we begin to entrust ourselves to Him and not to our own skills or abilities or godliness. So the second point that he wants to make is this, that our faith is a proper response to God that binds Him to us. Now this is really, I'll have to admit, when I first looked at this in Luther, I was struck by it. I said, this is amazing um, in the way he puts this together. Let me just read uh, from him. He says, the second point is this, a further function of faith that is, is this, that it honors him whom it trusts with the most reverent and highest regard since it considers him truthful and trustworthy. I thought, that fits my experience as well. If someone trusts me and considers me trustworthy and truthful, all of a sudden a relationship starts to be built. If someone, someone is suspicious of me, I mean, someone with my accent, wouldn't you have right to be suspicious? Well, whatever the case, the question is only when someone trusts someone else does the potential for a deep relationship form. And Luther gets that and he applies it to God. He says, there's no other honor equal to the estimate of truthfulness and righteousness with which we honor him whom we trust. Could we ascribe to a man anything greater than truthfulness and righteousness and perfect goodness? That's why I like Mike Reeves' book, The Good God, because he's putting the focus where it needs to be. If God's not good, we despair. But in God's goodness, we have a platform for trust and for confidence. And his goodness comes in the triune relationality of God, who's eternally a God of communion, a lover, who is eternally the Father loving the Son, the Son reciprocating that love, the Spirit shuttling back and forth that love between the Father and the Son and pouring that love out into our hearts. And this is the good God. And Luther is in effect saying, this is where our faith starts. It's a response. Then he says, on the other hand, there's no way in which we could show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him as we do when we do not trust him. So when the soul firmly trusts God's promises, it regards him as truthful and righteous. Nothing more excellent than this can be ascribed to God. The very highest worship of God is this that we ascribe to Him, truthfulness, righteousness, and whatever else should be ascribed to one who is trusted. When this is done, the soul consents to His will. Do you see where obedience comes from, according to Luther? It comes from trust, that we consent 
to the will of God when we find him the one we trust, in whom we delight, and with whom we want to travel. And where would we want to go if not with God? And so this is his, he says, when this is done, the soul consents to his will, then it hallows his name, and it allows itself to be treated according to God's good pleasure. For clinging to God's promises, it does not doubt that he who is true, just, and wise will do, dispose, and provide all things well. That's Luther. I love this guy. But you catch the point. Where's he coming from? He is so conscious of Genesis chapter 3. And that's where the problem really lies. How is it that Adam and Eve had, in the presence of Christ himself, I believe the God who walks on two legs is nothing other than a theophany, a Christophany, because the God, the Father, is not seen. We're told that in Exodus. And so here we have this union, communion relationship that Adam and Eve had. What a remarkable reality. And the slithering serpent comes in and says, Hell, he's not to be trusted. I'm to be trusted. Did God really say, do you believe him? Come on, he's trying to withhold good things from you. I'm here to slither up and tell you all kinds of good things that you can have. You can have enjoyments, you can have entertainments, you can have excitements, you can have all kinds of things every weekend especially. You can get drunk, you can get blasted, you can have all kinds of horrible things, and wouldn't that be a joy? And who believed the serpent rather than the living God? Adam and Eve did. And so does much of the church today. And for that reason, we need reformation. And it's only when the church begins to display a trust in the living God who is trustworthy, whose, whose lives begin to have a faith that becomes like a lens showing off the goodness of this living God who loves us. Only then will the world have something that can begin to reform us and turn us back from the lie that we can be like God and that our self focused freedoms or the ambition that we should then follow but instead say Lord not my will but thy will be done just as the son did see to be crucified and to come to the cross is the joy of discovering true freedom to die with Christ is to live with Christ and that takes us then to the third point and and Luther here comes to something that may catch us by surprise and this is why I like him a lot because frankly this is where Richard Sibbs drew from him rather heavily he says you know the key thing to grasp is that the third incomparable incomparable benefit of faith is that it unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom isn't that interesting this is in 1520 he's writing this he goes on, but this mystery, as the, apostle, as the apostle teaches, signing, of course, Apostle Paul, Christ and the soul become one flesh. He's referencing Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And if they are one flesh, they, there is between them a true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples of this one true marriage. And that's a great point that he makes. Do we have to put the weight of expectation in our relationship with Christ on our experience of marriage? Perhaps a parental marriage that's gone awry. Perhaps our own marriages say, I don't know if my marriage is a great example of anything good. But we all long, even if you have a good marriage, you know it's still short of the richness that could be offered to us. And, and if we think about it, the Bible is really all about covenantal marriage. In fact, I think we've made a mistake to turn covenant into contract, which is sort of, you do this and I'll do this. Here's where I'll tell you marriage 
really makes a difference in reading the Bible. Read through the whole Bible in six or seven weeks with this in view, and it will transform your life. I promise you, I've done it. And here's what, here's what I've discovered. That we start with, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. And of course, with the Holy Spirit involved, that's a Trinitarian creation, isn't it? And then what does it say in the next chapter? A man shall leave his father and his mother, the two shall become one. That's what is being cited here by Luther, but he's citing Paul. And what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5, 30 and 30, 31 and 32? He says, now this passage back in Genesis 2, oh, by the way, this is actually referring to Christ and the church. We thought it was talking about human marriage. Oh, it is, but human marriage is just the platform for grasping the greater reality of Christ and the church. And that explains why we come to the end of the Bible with the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that there's no marriage in heaven because our particular marriages will be swallowed up in the great marriage that was intended from Genesis 2. And therefore, all the covenantal language of the Old Testament, pay attention and you'll see how much it has to do with marriage. Malachi, those of you who are Italian, Malachi. Malachi is so striking because it, it gives us this picture of, I have been faithful. If I had not been faithful to the covenant that I've had with you, you would have been sent away. But as it is, I've been faithful. Now, why are you not faithful in your own marriages? Go read Malachi. It's right there. I wanted to have spiritual children birthed out of marriages. Come on. What's going on here? How about Hosea and Gomer? What's the problem of the Old Testament? Is it an angry God who is upset with everybody? No, it's a husband who's been jilted by a wife who's become a whore. And that's why if you read through the whole Old Testament, it's all about whoredom, faithlessness, harlotry. And God says, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. Isaiah 53, just read it. Oh, he's, God has laid upon the Son the sins of us all. That's the plan, that's the purpose. But then read chapter 54. What does it say? I was a husband to you, and I had to send you away for a time. Now I'm drawing you back on the basis of Isaiah 53. See, it's a marriage document. The Bible is about a marriage, the great marriage of Christ and the church. And that's what God wants. He's a lover. Luther gets it. Bless his heart. This is reformative stuff, folks. Let's bring it to the church. I'm getting excited here. I meant to teach. Let's quit preaching. Okay, so we go on here, just reading him a little bit more. And if they are one flesh and there's one true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples of this one true marriage, it follows that everything they have they hold in common the good as well as the evil accordingly the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were its own and whatever the soul his soul, this soul, has Christ's claims as his own. So let us compare these and we will see how incomparable the benefits are. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul, my soul, is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them and deaths, sins, deaths, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be mine. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. 
And if he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? And he goes on, he talks more about this. He says, oh, you know, now there's one such... Uh, there's since it was such a one who did all this and death and hell could not swallow him up these were necessarily swallowed up by him in a mighty duel for his righteousness is greater than the sins of all man and his life stronger than death his salvation more invincible than hell and you know what he's alluding to Luther knew his Bible we need to read our Bibles Isaiah 25 talks about on this mountain there will be a great feast and the one who is coming would swallow up death who swallowed up death who is big enough to swallow up death the living God in Jesus Christ and who was able to unite himself to us in our humanity the living God who is the son of man son of God son of man holy one and in that union, this is what we call a theology of participation. Some people attribute to Luther strict, what we call forensic theology, strict imputation. Well, he says, yeah, of course, there's a legal function here. Just as in a marriage, the two become one, and there will be a legal contract to record that. But when you come to an anniversary, you don't take out the contract and put two candles and say, oh, we love that contract. Isn't that special? The contract is simply a legal feature of the two who have become one. And with whom have we become one by faith in Christ, by the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us? Go look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 where it says, what are you doing mucking around with prostitutes? Don't you know, go back, he goes back, Paul goes back to Genesis uh, chapter uh, 2, the man, the man shall leave his father, the two shall become one. He says, now that's what we have with Christ by his spirit who comes and dwells in our spirits. We're one with Christ. So now treat your body as a temple of Christ who dwells in you. We're talking participation, union with Christ. And this is Luther. Where is it that we get our freedom as Christians? Through the fact that we've been set free by one who swallowed death. What do I have to do to earn this wonderful gift that God has given us? I don't know. What does a wife do to earn the benefits that she gets from being married to her husband or her husband the benefits of being married to the wife it's the love relationship it's the mutual devotion it's the shared adoration it's the practical walking through life on a day-to-day -day basis isn't it and what is it to live by faith it's to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called we've been adopted by Christ yes but that adoption is not a function of strict legal imputation but rather are being drawn in to the life of Christ so we're now in Christ and Christ is in us and so what are the insights as we conclude then what are the insights that we can learn from a Luther and that are the launching pad features for the Reformation the Protestant Reformation that are features that Mike talks about in the good God well there are three at least that I'd like to if I can find my notes here here we go the first is that we, we begin with God himself. It is who God is that defines us. He is a trustworthy God. And I think the thing that we grasp when we read more of Luther is we recognize that he's the triune God. And too much of what we've done in modern theology is to shift to a monadic singularity, a God of all power. But in fact, what we find in the gospel is a God whose power is a power of love, not a love of power. 
And if we go into a theology that is all about God's power and God's self and God's self-concern, I hate to tell you, but you don't get the love of God birthed in that setting. Instead, we have a lover who comes and offers himself to us through Christ. God, someone said it this way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, Luther's point, should not perish but have everlasting life. What's the challenge we face? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What is it that we do when we repent? We start to trust the one who the serpent told us not to trust. And even if our culture is forever hissing the very thoughts of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in London, the sins of disobedience, leave that behind and start to trust the one. And the greatest honor God will ever have is when we come to him and say, I trust you. I trust you. And it's your love for me that is the basis for my trust and my confidence. And the father, when he sees that we're bonded to the son, loves us. And this is what Richard Sibbs, I had to get him in here. Richard Sibbs would have to say in his, in his work we cited last year. He says, as much as the father loves the son, when we are the bride of the son, we're as beloved as the son is. And that's the level of communion we have available to us as Christians. And this is a message we must get out. Get it out to the universities. Get it out to the workplace. Get it out to families. Get it out. Spread it. Let there be a reformation based on that reality that we have a God who is a loving, caring God who in eternity past said, let's make a creation. We'll let that creation fall away from the love that we're going to offer them, but we'll draw some, yet not all. We'll come back into that love relationship that we're inviting them to participate in. And from that love, we'll have a reformation of life and souls being transformed by the love of God working within us. The second piece is that our communion comes through our union with Christ. It's not what we do. It's not my, I'm not a disciplines guy. I hate to tell you this. I will mock disciplines in my blogs if you ever read my blogs. I just, disciplines are all about me becoming more righteous, right? I'll tell you what creates discipline. Self-control comes from as a fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that's part of the list? And in fact, what comes is my delight becomes greater and greater in God as He reveals Himself through the Son and pours His love into my heart by His Spirit. What do I do? I just go, yes, Lord, I will go with you. I will travel with you. I'll read the Bible. I'll, I'll give myself to people. I'll be sacrificially committed to you. Yes, Lord. And what else can I do to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? That's going to take a long time. How much time do I have? Eternity? Oh, I'm not sure that's enough. See, it's the new ambition that comes from new desires because of our dependence on the one who loves us. And Luther got that. And finally, he says it, it's like Augustine would say, become people who love freely. Augustine, if he irritated anyone, he irritated a guy named Pelagius. Pelagius says, discipline, power, righteousness, that's what God wants. And Augustine says, no, 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 no. Love God and do whatever you want. What a transformative and freeing reality that is. Love God and do whatever you want. Because what will you do when you love God? Exactly what he wants. Because of our love for him. Okay, that's it. Huh. I, you need to read a little bit of Luther. He's a good guy. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so very much for our chance to consider freedom of a Christian, and we pray that our own hearts would be more reformed, transformed by our being in your presence. And may today be a marking day, not because of anything that we say here, but because we're reminded of your greatness. And may your love be captivating. May we be drawn into that love and may we share it freely with those around us who are just in the gritty, hard places of life and who need to be loved. We pray this in Jesus' name.